of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni, as well as local historians. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lily. And I'm Madeline. Historians' professional work can take on a variety of forms. There's academia, museum work, research, nonprofits, national parks, friends of groups. It's a long and diverse list. Here at Beyond Footnotes, we aim to give students a broad overview of the experiences they can have as a professional in history. Today we're interviewing Mary Rose, the Executive Director of Friends of Fort Vancouver National Historic Site. A historian and professional museum worker, she has a varied career filled of interesting jobs in history. In this episode, we'll hear about her background, education, past careers, and current role. Welcome, Mary. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, so to start off with, um, can you tell us a bit about the work you do as executive director of the Friends of Fort Vancouver? For those listening, Fort Vancouver is a national park site located across the river in Vancouver, Washington. Historically, it was a Hudson's Bay uh, fur train post, later on a U.S. Army post. As the director of a nonprofit organization, um, our work is primarily to help support the efforts of the National Park Service and the Forest Service now, located at the National Historic Site at Fort Vancouver. Uh, we have quite a few different activities that we do. We are in charge of fundraising and um, support for the volunteers, interpretation. Uh, but we also inherited, if you will, um, a, a nonprofit bookstore and uh, what we consider an art gallery as well. Um, the Fort Vancouver site has always interpreted, since its beginnings, the Hudson's Bay Company and the trade with Native Americans along the Columbia River. However, most of this emphasis uh, was placed on uh, Columbia River settlement by Europeans and Americans mm -hmm. and so with the opening and refurbishment of the visitor center um, the National Park Service took on interpretation of Native American cultures that have actually occupied the site for more than 10,000 years. In the, in the visitor center we now operate uh, this nonprofit bookstore and we feature Native American art as well as material culture uh, of the region uh, including flint and steel and um, other items that were traded uh, and so forth and so it's really quite an interesting venture into material culture that's still selling today and is popular and it's a means of educating the public as well as ourselves about those items uh, that were used at this site. Yeah, there's some there are some beautiful pieces like Lillian Pitt's work especially at the Visitor Center. Um, I know another thing the Friends of Fort Vancouver does is a lot of the public programming, correct? Um, could you speak a bit about that? Sure. Uh, yes, we, we try to keep public programming at the forefront of much of what we do. We have a lovely theater in the Visitor Center and so we have authors and speakers coming uh, almost every weekend now. Uh, we feature um, also <laughs> 
re recreations, if you will, of um, what we call the Sweetheart Dance in the mm -hmm. spring, uh, which is a World War II uh, dance where people are encouraged to come in costume and in uniform of the era. Uh, all of this requires some amount of research and, um, and background uh, for the different speakers and the speakers range from anywhere from Native American culture to uh, historical novelists uh, of the Oregon Trail and um, quite, quite a variety of different talks. Yeah, so do you want to just walk us through how you got into studying history and your career in history and how that led you to Fort Vancouver? Uh, I was raised in the Tri-Cities in a small town and uh, I think from a very early age I was fascinated with history not, not because it meant something to me uh, in terms of just studying dates and so forth, but because the actually the grade school I attended was named for Captain Robert or Captain William Gray, who was Robert Gray's uh, grandson, and um, in the sixth grade, if you can imagine, I <laughs> uh, was assigned a paper on Captain Gray. Well, it was a lot of fun because there were still people living in the town who had known the man. And so I went out and, and started talking with people. I found his grave and, and what little they knew. He was a steamboat captain. And I just found it fascinating. So I suppose I found the research really interesting. Uh, then as I went on, uh, I I loved historical novels, uh, Tolstoy, and and um, a number of different people who would write long novels that kept me occupied, I suppose, for a long period of time. Um, <clears throat> but as I prepared to go to college, um, I was really interested in international relations, not a lot to do with history study. Uh, but I went to Evergreen State College the first year that it opened in Olympia and there through the internship programs uh, I discovered that I maybe didn't really want to write history but I enjoyed the research part of it and I looked around for ways that uh, history was used uh, in the public and at that point, I applied for an internship at Burke Museum on the University of Washington's campus. So I was actually an intern from Evergreen State College on uh, the UW's campus for about two years. Um, I worked right there in the museum. I took all of the required courses for the university degree in museology. And museology at that time <laughs> was just beginning to blossom. There were only three programs, uh, three universities in the United States at that time, and this is in the mid-70s, uh, that offered a full course, undergraduate course, in museology. So I completed that and then went on to uh, study for my master's degree at Burke Museum. Uh, there again, in there in the university's master's program, 
uh, they encouraged you to intern. So my first internship in the community was with a nonprofit organization that was preserving historic ships. And um, that too was uh, quite a new venture and particularly from, for someone who was from uh, <coughs> a river community. Uh, but we had a sailing ship, 150 foot sailing ship. Uh, we had a steam powered ferry and uh, we had a tugboat and a light ship. So at the age of 19, I <laughs> started into the study of historic ships. And again, always what has drawn me to history was, were not the facts and figures, uh, but the people I met. And uh, it was truly a, a great thing to break into. And I was with the historic ship program there in Northwest Seaport for about eight years. Uh, and while I continued to study at the University of Washington, <coughs> that also led me into a um, part-time job with the creation of the Coast Guard Museum in Seattle on the waterfront. And so that broadened my perspectives, certainly of maritime history, and uh, open new doors for research too. And that's really how I continued on um, until I came to Vancouver. So another question, sir, you touched on this uh, briefly that museumology was a pretty rare program back then. And since now, things have really changed. Museum degrees are more common and there's different, you know, there's archive degrees, uh, public history degrees. Um, so that field has really changed a lot in the past years. Uh, do you have any observations pertaining to that, to public history and museumology and how it's evolved? Well, yes, of course, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's much more professional today mm -hmm. uh, than what it was at that time. Um, it, was, it was such a new field uh, that you had to convince profs in other departments uh, that you should even be allowed to take their courses, such as the law department um, and the evolution of museology has has been broadened, of course, archival management, um, touching in field of librarianship, um, and then public history. But in the 70s also, there was the rise, truly, of uh, women's studies, uh, black American studies, um, and they became somewhat splintered only because history had always been reserved primarily as a male-dominated area of interest. Um, not that women weren't interested, but we certainly were left out of most of the history books at the time. And uh, that, of course, was true through Native American studies or, or any other study um, at the time. So I uh, did not choose the path of women's studies, but chose <laughs> just the opposite and, and uh, majored in maritime history. Mm -hmm. And then eventually as I came to Vancouver, Washington to take over uh, Clark County Museums, then I switched and began studying military history. Okay. 
and made that my field. But what's happened today, of course, is, is much better in that most of these studies have been amalgamated, if you will, into a broader study of history so mm -hmm. that we're not so splintered and just concentrating on certain areas. So. Yeah, that's good. It's important, like, these different types of histories, they all intersect. And exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, um, I mean, as you're saying how the field of the study of history and public history has changed, I know that Fort Vancouver is a site that seems to really embrace the diversity of people who inhabit it over the centuries, really. Can you talk a little bit about the site's mission in terms of um, representing those diverse peoples and how that relates to this overall change in the museum field to be more inclusive? Yes. Um one of the true advantages of the Fort Vancouver site is the foundation of archaeological studies that it's built upon. Um, many historic structures are, uh, if you will, they're considered from the time they were built and preserved, um, such as a good example would be on Officer's Row there in Vancouver. You study the row from the standpoint of the time that each of the houses were built and their function on the row. But in the case of Fort Vancouver, uh, that is uh, not the original structure. It is a reconstructed fort, and it was very carefully reconstructed after extensive archaeological digs and studies, outlined the parameters of all of the buildings, um, extensive work was done in the late 50s and 60s on what was actually in the buildings, how the entire fort operated over a period of about 25 years. And um, so today what they've done um, is address not only the structures themselves as they were recreated and rebuilt on the original site, um, but there's a careful examination, of course, of the material culture and how that interacted with the culture of trade, of Native Americans, of Europeans and Americans coming here, um, the language, if you consider the fact that until 1850, the most common language spoken on the streets of Vancouver, Washington, uh, was French and Chinook Wawa. Um, it was not English until the United States Army arrived in 1849. So it's a fascinating place to, to examine how cultures and trade and language all affect the evolution of a place. And um, that's really what the Fort Vancouver National Historic Site has concentrated on for a long time. Uh, I would like to see it expand even more into the idea of how this trade brought these different cultures together and, um, and what, what was driving the trade, of course, we need to remember was the trade with China. So here we have come almost 200 years back to the fact that we're actively trading with China again. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, 200 years ago, that was the worldwide trade that most countries sought as well. So this was the center, if you will, of the triangular trade with China. Uh, ships would come from the east coast of America and from Great Britain. They would uh, sail to the Pacific. They would um, come to the Pacific Northwest for furs. They would stop in Hawaii to pick up, um, to trade some, uh, to have, to get water for the ships. Um, and then they would go on to China where they would trade these furs, primarily beaver, uh, to the Chinese for the products that they loved, which was the porcelains and, and all of the different fine products, the silks and so on, that then the ships would go back to the eastern coast of the United States and or to Great Britain. So it's really quite fascinating how the trade, um, you know, ebbs and flows. Um, yeah. But here we are again trading with China. So. Do you have any advice that you could give for s current students studying history and interested in getting into the, especially the field of public history, which can mm -hmm. seem kind of a dizzying and daunting world to get into? Well, I would say uh, don't hesitate to move ahead, even if the doors seem to close. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, over my career, uh, a number of doors seemed like they were shut, um, and oftentimes that's due to finances. Uh, there's just not enough money to go around, the grant funds run out, uh, and you move on. But what I've also found is that something that I've researched even 25 years ago um, suddenly will come up and there it is and it's very useful and very helpful with a project that I'm working on you know today um, you, you need to keep exploring and it's a wonderful field to explore but you also need to keep in mind how people actually related to this uh, what was the life like um, was their life very different from what we experience today probably not uh, politically, economically, um, socially, we're all human. And it's really so important to keep in mind when you're studying uh, history, when you're researching, that to have that thread of humanity there is really the key to all of this. So, well, I know uh, a lot about this. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about your work with the Confluence Project? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Confluence Project is such an interesting organization. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, they have um, the charge of building six sites along the Columbia River from the mouth uh, inland to um, Chief Timothy Park, which is near Lapway. Um, when it when the project got started, um, their goal was to do something more to celebrate the Lewis and Clark bicentennial than to, as they said, show two guys pointing west. 
Um, so it's a, been a very, very ambitious program and one that's quite successful. They um, have the services of Maya Lin to influence the development of these six sites. Um, and at Fort Vancouver, uh, we have the Land Bridge, which is very much a part of the historic site too. It reunites um, what used to be divided by ponds and river water um, to, the, to the river itself again. And uh, because of dams and so forth, um, those ponds all evaporated and, and are, are gone from the scene. Uh, but today with the land bridge, it also includes um, native plants and then at the fort, it's an interesting contrast because they have a heritage garden which uh, recreates the garden plants that were introduced uh, by the Hudson's Bay Company to this region. So at Confluence, my uh, position was primarily project historian and the mission of Confluence is to uh, reveal people's relationships to the river. Uh, much of it centers on Native American heritage and the um, traditions that involve the river and the species of the river and the water, of course. Um, but I worked primarily with um, developing other interests and relationships and, and researching how the cultures, Native and non-Native, um, have related together and have related uh, to the river itself. And that information is on a, a blog on Confluence called Tributary, so if you're interested, you can go online and read it there. Well, we're also uh, curious about uh, Rose Wind Press, which was, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, about 20 years ago, mm -hmm. um, I working again there in Clark County, um, decided that it would be a good idea to develop my own press um, for publishing. Uh, there are a number of wonderful topics that never see print, uh, and I kept coming across different subject matters, um, different letters, diaries, journals, and so on. Uh, that had never been published. Many of them were still sitting in family homes, um, needed some editing, and, and needed to be in print. And really, I, of course, started this before, long before uh, we had internet publishing. Publishing world has <laughs> changed in so many ways since that time, uh, but but the thought is still there. I mean, it's still good to bring these materials to light and to help people understand how interrelated they are. Um, I, one of the books that I published was a biography by Erskine Wood of CES Wood. Um, and that, of course, is a name throughout this region that most people are very familiar with. But uh, CES Wood, I found, opened many other doors and many other areas of study and so that's really what I've done with Rosewind Press is continue just to keep 
interesting materials uh, in front of people. Yeah, I think that's so important because there are so many interesting topics that just don't have any books or platform about them. And yeah, or somebody doesn't get published just because they're not a quote-unquote professional historian. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So not, many stories right. get erased. Yeah. Right, right. And, and also because we're on the West Coast. Um, yeah. It's, you know, um, the latest book about Grant. Many people still don't know that Grant lived here from 1855 till 1858. Mm -hmm. um, he was a lieutenant at Fort Vancouver, at Vancouver Barracks, um, and he did not drink a lot while he was there, according to the, to the couple who were his servants. Um, so they, uh, one of the stories that goes with that is that Ingalls, who was also a lieutenant here, um, the two of them learned to speak Chinook, Chinook oh, jargon. And so during the Civil War, <laughs> it became a secret code mm. that those men who had served here in the Pacific Northwest could use Chinook jargon for secret messages. Oh. So, um, so there are lots of ties, but oftentimes from the, the East Coast perspective, you don't always have that kind of information available to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the so like West Northwest history is often kind of neglected by the wider academic sphere in history, which is sad. Um, are there any pro other projects or jobs you've done you'd like to uh, talk about today? Well, I I I think again addressing the idea of of studying history and and incorporating it into a profession. Um, I really was very fortunate uh, to have worked with historic preservation. Uh, I worked with it with historic ships and then some with with historic homes and houses and buildings. Um, there was a great difference between working with a historic ship that was actually floating on water <laughs> and and having one that was on a foundation even if the foundation wasn't so good um, but I think as I said earlier it's just to keep an open mind about um, studying history and and what what interests you and and how how you can tie yourself to this so it's a good good field great mm -hmm. field well, thank you, Mary. I think that's all our questions for today, but, well, in general. But, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. And it's a pleasure mm -hmm. to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. See. Uh, Beyond Footnotes is produced by students at the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always inter interested to know what you guys think about the show, please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. Any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast? For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes. And don't forget to share. Tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. Thank you. Thank you.